Amen, amen, amen. Good morning, Village Church. Good morning. morning. There are a handful of you that I've never seen before today, so I want to introduce myself. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor at the Village Church over in Bartlett. And uh, many of you know this, but Pastor Craig, uh, your lead pastor, and I, um, almost every week we prepare our sermons together. And so throughout the week, we swap notes. We have an incredible time. Every once in a while, new people jump in with us. And so uh, Craig is I, is, I heard the first maybe minute of his sermon at Village Church. And, uh, but he and I love to swap. And uh, so I, it's my joy to be with you. Also, I brought a couple friends with me. Uh, technically, he was coming whether or not I was preaching or not. But one of our elders, actually Megan, who just gave the announcements. Uh, her father is here, Kirk Verhasselt. And so Kirk's up front. And then our connections director, uh, no, first impressions director. What's your job title, John? John does a lot of stuff. John's, John's my buddy. John's here with us. And, uh, and so anyways, we are so happy to be with you guys. Um, do you guys know that we're in a series in the book of Genesis? Craig is preaching on Genesis, correct? Like the life of Jacob, we're all on the same page here. All right, good, good, good. Open up your Bibles, Genesis chapter 29, if you would be so kind. And uh, here's what I want to do. I want to start off and, and uh, make sure that we are all on the same page. I want to do a little bit of a Genesis refresher. Uh, here's the question I want you to answer. Which character am I talking about? Who in the book of Genesis am I talking about? This is technically not my pro presenter file or my sermon for today. <laughs> Is it really? Oh, no. That's disastrous. Um, well, I'll tell you what. Um, so we're going to totally ignore that. Just go back to the life of Jacob. And then here's what I want you to do. How did I do that? That is an epic fail of unreasonable proportions. Okay. So uh, we don't need that. My apologies to you. So open up your Bibles. Genesis chapter 29. Got it there. Genesis 29. If you have a... Um, a phone, you can open up there. And then by chance, Brent, do we have any extra Bibles laying around? I know usually we do digital and that's like our, our thing. We're good. Okay. Genesis 29. If you need to download a Bible app, you can do that. Even if you just go to your web browser and type in Genesis 29, it will come up right there. So here's the question. Who in the book of Genesis am I talking about? Here we go. Your options are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Esau. Who am I talking about? It is the most important day in this man's life. This was the culmination of years of anticipation and waiting. An ancient ritual is about to be undertaken, and it's one where a father would give a gift. A feast would be provided, and alcohol would flow freely. Now, little did the guy that we're talking about know that while he was preparing for this very eventful day, the most important day of his life, he was being deceived and betrayed by his very own family. The deception was actually a coordinated plot by a parent and their child. The deception was constructed around a feast of food where, again, alcohol would be used to numb the senses of the one being deceived. Now listen to this. The deception required a child intentionally disguised as their sibling in order to take for themselves what was rightfully the others. You catching me? Who am I talking about? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Esau? What do you guys think? We have some Esau's. Do we have any Abraham takers? You're going to say Abraham? Okay. No, he's like, no, it's not Abraham. It's not Isaac. Now, here's the deal. I'm I'm just going to give you a little surprise. If we were in Genesis chapter 25, the answer would absolutely be Esau. 
Jacob, his twin brother, dressed up, disguised as somebody else, coordinated a, a deceptive plot with his mother, and they ended up taking away from Esau what was rightfully his massive deception. If this was Genesis 25, that is exactly what the answer would be, but it's not. It's Genesis 29, and the answer is Jacob. In fact, the title of this message is The Grappler Gets Grappled because Jacob is going to get a taste of his absolute very own medicine. Now, just, just so you know, if any of you really like um, vengeance, this is one of these stories where you're like, finally, uh, the guy's going to get a taste of his own medicine. Like, this is supposed to be really, really satisfying for every person reading through the book of Genesis. Uh, you should be saying, good, this guy gets exactly what he, what he deserves. Uh, I want to set some context for you. Uh, the book of Genesis is a book about origins. In fact, the book, the, the word Genesis means beginnings or origins. And Genesis is the story of the origins of the subjects that are the most important to God. So you hear about the origins of humanity, the origins of creation, the origins of marriage. Uh, you hear about the origins of all of these things that are so near and dear to the heart of God, but there's one subject matter that takes up the vast majority of the book of Genesis and actually consumes almost all of the Old Testament. And it is the origin story of the nation of Israel who is near and dear to the very, very heart of God. And so what happens in Genesis chapter 12 is we start with Abraham. Abraham's son was? Isaac, and Isaac's son was Jacob, which is how now we get ultimately to the life of Jacob here. And so here's what you need to know. What's happening is that the story of the nation of Israel is being told, and they're telling the story by telling the story of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then his descendants. Now, for those of you who are newer, we're going to do a little bit of a rewind, okay? Genesis chapter 25, um, here's what we saw, that Jacob stole his twin brother Esau's birthright. Um, this was an, uh, this was a, a, basically came with a lot of money, uh, wealth, resources, authority. It is a privilege given to the firstborn where the firstborn would get the vast majority of the father's wealth and influence. Uh, the younger brother took this from the older brother through deception, bad news bears. Uh, in Genesis chapter 27, Esau took Jacob's blessing. There's two things as a dad that you're going to give to your firstborn son. The first is the birthright. The second is the blessing. No bueno, no good. The younger brother has robbed the older brother of all of this. The younger brother Esau, does he like Jacob or hate Jacob? He hates Jacob. He wants him dead. This man stole everything from him. His brother, his very own blood, stole everything from him. And Esau has plotted in his heart, I'm going to end him. He's going to be over. We're going to take this guy's life. And then Esau foolishly starts talking about it to other people. And so what happens is his mother, Rebecca, and his father, Isaac, look at Jacob and say, you need to get out of Dodge. Your brother's going to kill you. Leave. And when your brother's anger subsides, we'll call for you. And then you can come back home. By the way, is the guy's anger going to subside anytime soon? And the answer is like, no, not at all. Uh, now, I, wanna, um, I was going to show you a picture. I don't actually have it up here. Um, but in the family line, I need to show you something. So I'm not going to show you visually. I'm going to show you audibly, right? Are you ready to paint a picture with your mind? If you imagine a family tree, you have Abraham. And Abraham's son, again, is Isaac. Isaac's wife was Rebecca. Rebecca has a brother. And Rebecca's brother's name is Laban, okay? So here's what I need you to understand. We're dealing with Jacob. Jacob's mom is Rebecca. 
Jacob's dad is Isaac. But there's a dude, okay, in a place far, far away named Laban, and that's his uncle. And here's what, here's what you need to understand about what's going on here. Rebecca is going to send her son Jacob, as he's running for his life, to her brother. And they're going to go a couple hundred miles to the north and to the east, far, far away through the desert. It's going to be a perilous journey. In chapter 28, Jacob is running for his life. Jacob has lost everything. I mean, what good is a birthright and a blessing if you can't use it, by the way? I said to Bartlett last week, it's like having a billion dollars in the bank, but you have no credit card or checkbook to use it with. It's totally worthless. So even though he literally ruined all of his relationships to get the birthright and the blessing, uh, he's gone. He's lost everything. He's lost his mom, his dad, his brother, and the guy is how many years old? 70 stinking years old, and he's going on a very long journey. Now we get to Genesis chapter 29, verse 1, and here's what it says. Then Jacob went on his journey, and he came to the land of the people of the east. Uh, Now what's going to happen in 29 is we're going to skip 10 verses, and we're going to go right to verse 11, because this is where the story starts to pick up. Jacob is running for his life, and I want you to just notice this the author is going to bring you into Jacob's emotional state. One of the most important parts of this whole story is how Jacob is dealing with everything emotionally. Now, if you had just lost all of your family and the birthright and the blessing and you burned every bridge you had, would you be happy or sad? Pretty sad. And if you were all alone in a desert for weeks and weeks on end, and you're sleeping out, outside uh, with a rock as a pillow, uh, and you're going to be reflecting on this, are you going to become more depressed or more happy? probably more depressed. And so we find as as Jacob is on a journey, uh, here's what happens in verse 11. You get this interesting insight into his emotions. It says this, then Jacob kissed Rachel. By the way, they don't know each other. Never seen each other before in their life. Jacob comes onto their, their territory, sees her, hears that she's somehow related to her family, to his family. And he looks at her, he says, he kisses her and he weeps aloud. Have you ever wept aloud? Anybody? I can think of like three occasions in my life. And when a man weeps aloud, you know that they're not in a good place. She represents to him a lot in this moment. This is a 70-year-old man with no wife, no kids, no family, no possessions. And he sees this woman, and when he learns that this is family, he realizes for the first time, I get a chance to have a new start. This is a deeply emotional moment for him. And what's happening is his life goes from highs to lows. I've got the birthright. I've got the blessing. I've lost everything. My brother's going to kill me. I'm in the desert. And finally he sees her and he's on another high again. Verse 12 says this, Jacob told Rachel, this woman he's never seen or met before, that he was her father's kinsman, that's family, and that he was Rebecca's son. You know, your Aunt Rebecca, I'm her son. I'm your cousin. Any, anyone of you ever married your cousin, by the way? Don't do it. It's not healthy. Don't do that. Okay. Verse 13 says, says this, as soon as Laban, do you guys see the name Laban? As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, if you don't, if you don't have the Bible in front of you, listen to these words, he ran to meet him. Remember this line. Who ran to meet Jacob? Laban. Good. Here we go. And embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all the things that had happened. Now, here's what I got to tell you. Laban 
Every time he comes up, everything he does, you need to have a filter over your eyes. Because there's going to be some things that Laban does, and you're going to tell yourself, um, I, think, I think he's an okay guy. Here's the filter that you need to have over your eyes in every sentence, everything Laban says ever, always, all the time. Laban is always up to something. So on the count of three, I'm going to go one, two, three, and you're all going to say in unison, if you're willing to say it, Laban is always up to something. One, two, three, Laban is always up to something. Even when it looks like he's doing a good thing, the guy is always up to something. How do you know this? There's multiple reasons, but if you go back a couple chapters in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 24, um, you can turn there or I'll read it to you. And we get our first introduction to Laban. And here's what it says. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban. Laban ran out to meet the man. You ever noticed that Laban runs a lot? Laban always runs to meet rich men. Whenever Laban hears that someone's got money, Laban runs out to them. Laban's got one thing on his brain, and that's money. As soon as Laban saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah's sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. We know he didn't run until he saw all the gold. And he's like, whoever this is has a lot of money. I'm going to run to that guy. It is not an accident. Laban only runs towards rich men who have money, that, who has money that he thinks he can get for himself. Now we go back to Genesis 29. We're back to the story. Verse 14. Laban said to him, Jacob, surely your bone, uh, you are bone, my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, I remember, every time Laban says something, he's up to no good. Because you're my kinsman, my family, you should therefore serve me for nothing. Why don't you, why don't you stay a while? Tell me, what will your wages be? Now, I want to I give you a hint of why Laban is being really nice. Like if somebody came up to you and they let you stay for an entire month and said, you should really stay here. Like, what do you want me to pay you, right? What could Jacob be doing for Laban? Let me tell you a little hint about Jacob that you need to know to understand Jacob's life. In the same way that Laban, every time that you read Laban's name, he's always up to something bad. Here's the truth, the, the reality about Jacob. Everything Jacob touches turns to gold. Everywhere Jacob works, he makes people money. If Jacob worked for you, you would become very, very rich very quickly. Jacob is there for one month just working. And already Laban is like, I, I heard about the God of Abraham and this blessing that's on this kid, but this is unbelievable and unthinkable. Uh, I need to keep this guy around because he's making me a ton of money. And so here, here's, here's this question. What do, I, what do I do to milk Jacob for all he's worth? Because this guy's making me rich. And so verse 16 tells us the story about what's going to happen, what, Jacob, or what Laban's going to do to keep Jacob around. Verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. And then it says this. Leah's eyes were weak. FYI, this really has nothing to do with her eyes. This is what it means. She was really ugly. And just to let you know, like, what that meant. So when, when Rachel was born, she was apparently very beautiful and very cute child. So they named her E-W-E, which is like a beautiful female lamb. Very precious, very cute, very adorable. They named her Kyle. That's what Leah means. They're like, 
She looks like a cow. Okay. Oh, adorable little lamb. This is not good. So like this name, right, hung over her her whole life. Like this is really sad. Like honestly, I feel like these parents were merciless. Like like every kid is ugly when they come out of the womb. I'm sorry. Very few times when a child is born, you're like, that's a beautiful baby. Like, and do you mean it? Usually it's like, wow, that child went through a small space. This is crazy. So like, but something happened. Something happened with her. There was something fundamentally wrong with her where they literally looked at her from the very beginning and called her Leah. That was her, that was her name, Cow. And then you wonder, which one do you think Jacob liked better? Well, duh, here's what it says. Jacob loved Rachel. Now, the word loved, it's the Hebrew word ahava. Different Hebrew words have different meanings, but it's very important. Ahava, it's not sexual love. It's not friendship love. It's the kind of love where two souls are bound together uh, in a powerful way. It's beyond friendship. It's like, it's like a best, best, best friendship where nothing can break this apart. Like obviously in a marriage, you want ahava to be the foundation of your marriage, right? But ahava can be also male-male friendships, female-female friendships. Um, this is about a deep soul-knitting, soul-connection of two people together. Whatever Jacob and Rachel experienced wasn't just one way. This was very mutual. It was very powerful, and it transcended even just her good looks. It says that Jacob, in verse 18, loved her. He ahavad Rachel, and he said to Laban, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Like, here's what he's saying. He's like, well... I mean, you're really putting me out. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's been a really hard month with you around here. I don't know if I can keep doing this, but better to give her away to somebody that, like, I know than somebody I don't know. All right, here we go. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. I want you to notice, between verses 20 and 21, how many years have taken place? Seven. So, like, if you're reading this story, and you're not paying attention to timelines, you're going to be completely confused. The dude works for seven years straight because he absolutely adores and loves this woman. I mean, I would love to think that there was something in this world that I would work for for seven years like that. I mean, of course, my wife, right? That's for sure. We'll put that out there. But that's a long time. Like, most people don't date or get, I mean, when, 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 you, when you're dating somebody for seven years before you get married to them, everyone around you is like, for the love of God, just make this thing happen, right? Like, come on, let's do this thing. Seven years is an incredible amount of time. Why did Jacob say seven years? Nobody actually knows. Like, for me, I would have been like six months, and uh, then you give me your daughter. Seven years, and he waits, and he waits patiently. Verse 21, he says, give me my wife. It's time, verse 22. So here's what Laban does. Laban gathered together all the people of the place, and he made a feast. By the way, the last time there was a feast was when Jacob provided a feast for his father to trick him and to deceive him and to take away his brother's birthright. Now, here's what you need to know about feasts in the ancient Near East in this time. Uh, Wedding feasts were about a week long, food everywhere. You party, 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 Uh, You don't totally know when the consummation of this marriage would happen, but the idea is that it's towards the end of the week. It's in the evening, and this is the culmination of one big, huge, communal, absolute, amazing party. Family comes in from, from everywhere. 
Now here's what happens in verse 23. But in the evening, he, Laban, took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Wait a minute. Who's Jacob supposed to be marrying? Rachel. Now, at this moment, I've actually thought this for years until like the last two weeks when Craig and I have been putting this together. How in God's green earth do you not know on the wedding night who the woman is? In the same way, when you go back and read the story of Jacob deceiving his dad, Isaac, let's just talk to the dads for a moment. You have two sons. Do you feel like, even if you were blind, you could tell which son was the other one? Like, Mark? Do you, do you feel like if one of your boys dressed up as the other, like he would be able to dupe you, even if you were blindfolded? Never in a million years. You're reading this, and you're like, what is wrong with Isaac? Like, he's old, but he's not that old, you know? And so what you learn in the story of Genesis 25 is that Jacob got him drunk. The wine was flowing. The alcohol was numbing the senses. And you even, you even start to hear it in the things that Jacob or Isaac would say to Jacob in Genesis 25. Like, are you sure that you're my son? Like, I, I feel like something's going on here. You smell like my son, but you don't sound like him. You know, like, like if you read that into it, then it starts to actually make sense. You're like, that actually brings together a little bit of the story. And then you get again, you're like, what is going on in Jacob that he's like, how do you not realize this? Well, there's a whole bunch of things going on here. Number one, there is the issue of disguise. Number two, Leah had to be in on the story, did she not? Leah must have been collaborating with her father Laban to trick him. So you're dressing like Rachel, you're smelling like Rachel, you're not probably saying a lot of words, you're making sure that Jacob has had a significant amount to drink uh, before that uh, they're even brought into the wedding chambers. I mean, you're going out of your way, if you are Laban and Leah, to make sure that you are duping Jacob. And if here's the deal. If you're the original readers of this, I want you, like many of you have heard the story, but if you're reading this for the first time, here's what every first-time reader should be saying. <gasps> no, wait a minute. <gasps> like it's supposed to be like shocking, but I think we lose some of the shock as we get um, removed uh, from the story. And so here's what it says in verse 23. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and he brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Verse 25. And in the morning... Behold, it was Leah. In the Hebrew, it's actually just two words. Behold, Leah. <clears throat> and again, you're supposed to go, like, this is like a soap opera. This is like Hebrew, like drama. This is the real housewives of Haran. I don't know. This is so, you're supposed to be shocked. And fortunately, we all know how the story ends. <laughs> Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Okay, we're going to do a little exercise. You've been very responsive so far, so I feel bold to ask you of this. Um, I want you to give me like your best fake laugh. I'm going to read this. And what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to laugh hysterically at the irony, okay? So Jacob says, um, why then have you deceived me? <laughs> like, that's laughable. That is, com- like, he doesn't even realize. Like, the grappler just got grappled. Like, the deceiver he just got deceived. And he's all upset. Like, have you ever wanted the freedom to do something to somebody else, but when they do it to you, you're like, how could you? Right? Every one of us in the room. And that's what he's like, why does he have the freedom 
to exploit his father, take advantage of him, deceive him, get him drunk, disguise as a sibling, and take away something that was rightfully his brother's. And yet when the exact same scenario is done to him, somehow, for some reason, he's shocked. And Laban's response is like, like, it's almost like, I know what you did. Here's what he says. It's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. We don't invert birth orders here, son, right? I know what you did, right? Here's what's interesting. A great deceiver, like the people who are being tricked, won't even see it coming. Like Jacob was okay at deceiving. You know the reason he was okay is because he's trying to trick his dad in Genesis 25, and his dad's like, I think something's fishy. Drink more, dad, drink more. He didn't even have a clue of what Laban was doing. Now rewind. Go to Genesis 25 in your brains with me. You have the story where Rebecca comes to Jacob and she says to him, dress up like your dad. I'll prepare a feast for you. Jacob says, what if I get caught? She says, I'll take the curse on myself. He says, I don't know if we should do it. She says, son, do it. And he's like, I don't know. She commands him to do it. Who's the bigger trickster, Jacob or his mom? His mom. And guess where his mom learned it all from? Her brother. And it's interesting, right? So when Esau wants to kill her brother, uh, her, the mother says, go to Laban. Go to Laban. He'll take care of you. Isaac says, yeah, go to Laban. He'll give you a taste of your own medicine. Like everyone's like, yeah, go to Laban. Like you guys are basically cut from the same exact cloth. And so it's interesting, you're watching a history of family deception. In fact, in the book of Genesis, you watch familial patterns. Uh, for example, um, every dad in Genesis had a, a favorite and a second favorite, right? And then they hated the fact that they weren't the favorite. And then they go do it to the next generation. And so, of course, Jacob hates like, his father, the, the fact that his father loved Esau better than him. And then Jacob, by the way, has 12 sons. Who's his favorite son? Technicolor dream coach. Joseph, right? Like you're doing the same, like they are passing down the deception and the favoritism from one generation to another. The very thing they hate, they end up repeating in Genesis. We could preach five sermons on generational sins just from the book of Genesis alone. Laban says, complete the week for this one and I will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Basically he says this, finish the party for Leah At the end of the party, I'll give you Rachel right now, but you work for me for seven more years. Like, what a trick. Now, if he made him wait seven more years for Rachel, that's 14 years, Jacob wouldn't have put up with it. But he gives him what he wants right away, and the the grappler got grappled. The deceiver, he done got deceived. Like, that's actually really unusually satisfying because as a reader, I'm thinking to myself, I don't like Jacob. Like, who burns every bridge? Who deceives their brother and their father like this? And there's something very satisfying when you read this. Like, God is like, I'm not going to let him really get away with this. Verse 28 says, Jacob did so, completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Verse 30 says this, so Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served Laban another seven years. Here's a good word. Don't marry two women. But if you do marry two women, don't love one more than the other. It won't go well for you. Let's, let's give you some so what's as we, as we close. So what number one? Typically, when you see the whirlwind 
in someone's life, it's almost always because they sowed the wind. Have you, ever, have you ever heard that phrase? It's from the Bible. If you sow the wind, you'll reap the whirlwind. I want to tell you what this isn't. It's not some kind of cosmic karma. Karma is not something that jives uh, with the Bible in any way. It's not some prosperity thing. Like if you sin big, then God's automatically going to punish you. But if you're good, then he'll make your life easy. It's not that. Um, there is this principle, though, in the scripture that if you do dumb things, dumb things will happen around you and inevitably dumb things will happen to you. So like, if you're going to be in the mob, well, who do mobsters hang out with? Other mobsters. Are you more likely to be killed and betrayed by mobsters or your mom? For sure, mobsters, right? And so like, when you start doing these things, then you surround your life and your world with these things. Um, back in the day, my, um, my wife worked with a woman who shall remain nameless. But this woman was late to work all the time. I would say 28 out of 30 times she would be working, she'd be anywhere from five minutes late to an hour and a half late. Now, about one week of every month, there would be some kind of personal trauma that would just take over her whole life. And there would be times when she would come in and say, I can't, I can't, you know, do this, I can't work, I'm off, whatever. And you, you got to a point where you're watching this person's life and you, you thought to yourself, she is the most unlucky person I've ever met in my life. And some of it was just bad coincidence. But by and large, I would say 90, 95% of it was really just her reaping the whirlwind because of all the wind that she had sown in her life. Every week it was a family tragedy, a financial tragedy, a physical tragedy, etc. Every week it was something. And at some point you just step back and you're like, wow, you, you, re- you sowed the wind for 25 years of your life without repentance. And now the whirlwind is starting to come back. And so this is just a very normal rhythm of life. And so sometimes we step back and we look at people's crazy and there's this interesting reaction that I think that we're, we have a tendency to have. When life goes bad for us or for other people, you have one of two responses. And if you've heard me preach uh, any more than four times, I've probably said this to you, so this will come out over and over again. When life doesn't go the way we expect, oftentimes it's because we did it. Not always, but oftentimes. And then we have two responses. One is we shake our fist at God uh, and we say, how could you? We wag our accusatory finger at him and say, if you loved me, you wouldn't do this. And then the other response is we get on our knees and we say, help me. And my, my encouragement to you is, I don't know why the whirlwind might be happening around you. That's why I say typically, sometimes the whirlwind just happens, right? Sometimes life, like we haven't done anything to deserve it, and life just happens, but every one of us, when we're in the whirlwind, have the opportunity to either get on our knees or shake our fist. And I will just tell you after watching human after human, brother and sister after brother and sister, shake their fist at God when God doesn't, doesn't feel like God's performing for them, it never does anything productive. Like, never have I watched God relent because we shake our fist at God. Never. I have watched God help many people who get on their face before him. And what I want to see Jacob do at this point is get on his face because he's reaping the whirlwind because he sowed the wind. Now, number two. The whirlwind is always, always meant to bring you back to Jesus. Like, I want to be really clear whether the whirlwind was because you sowed it or because it's just something that happened. 
or it's because somebody in your life sowed it and you're reaping their whirlwind. That, that is very real. God could at any moment stop any whirlwind, could he not? Like God was aware of everything happening between Jacob and Laban and Leah, everything. At any moment, God could have stopped this and Jacob never would have been deceived by his own family. He never would have got a taste of his own medicine. God could have done it, but he didn't. And whenever you watch the whirlwind, whenever you watch this, and you say, God, why are you letting this happen? The answer is almost always going to be the same. So that you run to me. That's it. If life was easy, would you ever pray? No. Like, this is a little silly, but um, I, I don't pray for things that are easy. Like, I don't wake up in the morning and say, God, would you help me brush my teeth? Like, I can brush my teeth just fine. You know? God, would you help me put on my shirt? Like, I go to God for things that are hard. I ask for his help. I realize my need for him, not because of brushing my teeth, but because there's a lot of things outside of my power and control, and he's the only one that can actually help or solve or fix them. And there's something about God where he does not let things go too easy sometimes because he wants us on our face, on our knees, and to run back to him. And yet this is like a choice that every one of us has to make. When, when the whirlwind is around us, do we shake our fists or do we get on our knees? And I think sometimes that we think if we get angry, he's going to be like, well, I'm, I don't want him to not like me. Like God is not concerned whether or not you like him or not. And he does not do or not do things to make sure like his PR levels with you are okay. That's just not how he works. In fact, what I found is that the more people shake their fists, the greater the whirlwind around them often gets. And so my, my just strong admonition is I'm looking at Jacob and there's more to come in this story. We're going to pause it right here. Um, but what I want Jacob to do is repent. What I want Jacob to do is to get on his face. And here's the question. I'm not even going to tell you how it ends. Will Jacob stop grappling? Will Jacob get on his face? Will Jacob repent? What is it going to take to get him to do it? And these are just some of the big questions. I'm going to leave you with that. And so if you want more to figure it out, come back next week. And uh, Craig is going to give us the next few messages on the life of Jacob. But this guy is drama, drama, drama. Is he not? Do you guys, do you guys know people like Jacob, by the way? <laughs> drama, 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 right? And people who are like Jacob, guess how many friends they have? None. And when their drama goes on, it's like, oh. So Craig and I, as we're preparing this, we sit, uh, the last couple of weeks we sat in his backyard and, and it's been beautiful out and we just plan and prepare. And we're just like, we're thinking about all these people. We're like, oh no, I know people like this. Oh no. And it's so sad because Jacob is like one big visual to all of you. You don't need to be like this. Like he was like this, so you don't have to be like this. So I want to take a minute. I want to, I want to pray for you. And I want to just say thank you for uh, giving me the privilege to open up God's word with you. And uh, I hope the lack of visuals wasn't too distracting. But hey, we have Bibles, so that helps. Um, let me pray, and then we're going to worship together some more. Father, we love you. And I want to just say thank you for Village Church and each of the men and women and students and kids in this room. Um, Lord, what a joy that we have to come together and to be a part of a local church and to be on your mission to make disciples and to go and to grow and to overcome in the faith. And Lord, we love you. God, as I think about Jacob and the whirlwind that he just reaps everywhere he seems to go on a relational level, God, I know that some of us in this room probably can relate to that, and some of us can see, even right now, we're reaping the whirlwind because we sowed the wind. 
And so God, as we experience the whirlwind, may it have the effect on us that you want it to. Would you cause in us not a heart of rebellion, but a heart of repentance? Lord, we want to be able to look at these Old Testament saints and learn from their traumas and tragedies. And God, I thank you that forgiveness and reconciliation is 100% available no matter how incredibly strong the whirlwind is we're in right now through faith in Jesus. I want to just say thank you for him and Father, you've given us your only son because like we are all rebels. We are all deceivers. And Lord, there is nothing Jacob could ever do to pay for the price of his own son of sins and there's nothing we can do either. So thank you for giving us Jesus. And Lord, as we worship you now, I pray you would fill our hearts and our minds with genuine and sincere gratitude. We love you and worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and continue in worship.